0: The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements in treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. Good afternoon, everyone. We're here for another episode of Taking It to Heart. We have our valve team here at Columbia Structural Heart and Valve Center. Uh, We have Rebecca Hahn, we have Sashil Kadali, we have Tamim Azif. So the full spectrum of expertise here. Today, we're gonna talk about the new valve guidelines, part two, this is chronic primary MR. This is uh, probably the most confusing part of the guidelines, honestly. And we're gonna try to make this Um, even more confusing is unfortunately, um, because it's just not an easy topic to make uh, clear. I'll try to just quickly go through some of the indications uh, and intervention changes that they've made in the documents. There are some, um, and there's some highlights that we'll point out. And then we'll talk about how this affects what we do in clinical practice. So first, you know, it's interesting to note the notes are, are a little more informative than they've been in the past, and they're, they're quite uh, robust. They do uh, specify that a normal EF and, and chronic primary MR should be 70%, and anything less than that is not normal. Um, CMR is now added for discrepancy between clinical symptoms and ECHO. Uh, ECHO is now added for more of a in-depth assessment of LV function uh, using specifically uh, global longitudinal strain, GLS, as well as serum biomarkers that can be used to monitor MR and the effect of MR before EF decreases. So now that, those are all 2B uh, indications to start using some of these, um, these testing. In terms of interventions, um, uh, the primary ones have, the, the main ones have stayed the same. Severe symptomatic MR should be treated, um, irrespective of LV function. We used to have a lower limit of 60%. These are all class one uh, indications. Uh, we used to have specific recommendations for repair of the posterior and the anterior leaflet. Now it's just specified that you just do a repair and a repair is preferred over replacement, which makes things a lot easier. Mitral valve surgery, uh, when it's severe, doing other cardiac surgery, uh, it was a class one indication, I believe, and now that has been removed. But what it has, what has uh, been added, is mitral valve repair or replacement for asymptomatic patients with an EF greater than 60 and LVESD less than 40, uh, but a noted increase in LV size or decrease in EF on three studies, and that's a class two b. Uh, 2B indication, um, edge-to-edge repair is reasonable in patients who have a life expectancy greater than a, a year who are high risk. It's now a 2A indication. Uh, it was, uh, uh, sorry, it, um, that's a new indication. Uh, and it also specifies uh, that the wording that uh, guideline-directed medical therapy should be fulfilled, which is new uh, wording rheumatic surgery can be considered an appropriate anatomy. That's new, that's a 2B indication. What's gone uh, as 2A indications are atrial fibrillation and pulmonary hypertension as indicators or indications to move forward with mitral valve surgery. Um, so, uh, you know, again, know There's a question
1: <laughs> I was gonna ask you, Isaac, cause they also removed the indication to intervene on moderate Primary MR at the time of other cardiac surgery,
2: and Correct. I thought that was really exactly interesting
1: right. um, because we we got into this mindset, right? Moderate MR, you know, at the time of, of 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 other cardiac surgery, you're going to actually do something about it. But they they actually removed the indication completely.
0: Yeah, they even removed it. Um, they removed mitral valve surgery when it's severe when other cardiac surgery is. Uh, being performed if I believe uh, that's just look through. I believe they removed, they removed it for mitral valves uh, for non-mitral valve surgery as well. Let me just look here.
1: Yeah, it's for any, any, any concomitant cardiac surgery. Right. And the, the other thing that I thought was interesting is that they, they, they removed the lower limit of ejection fraction and i i wasn't quite sure why they did that but it was less than 30% you know you wouldn't you you weren't supposed to intervene um, if the ef was less than or equal to 30% and that's completely gone there is no lower limit
3: correct correct
1: i mean, I mean what do, is- do you think that is
3: i mean is that where you know cuz i always struggle right we we get all these transfers you know patient ef is read right as 25 we look at it we're like well it's probably a little bit better maybe not and these are patients that we're not maybe not getting offered treatment or you know but what you know we i think it's a consideration but is it anything absolute i mean do you, do you agree that they should have removed the lower limit um, is it because we're under treating people is, is that what that suggests is there any trial data to support it i mean is it just more let's make it a consideration, and that we should think about you know, really low EF.
1: Yeah, you're cutting out a little bit, Sushil, but... Um, oh, sorry about that. No. Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that that was in there because, as you know, you your afterload reduced with your MR. And I, I mean, Isaac, you can speak to this better than I can. Um, and so, once you fix it, um, there's an increase in afterload. And will a bad ventricle um, respond with an increase in in, in cardiac output uh, even after mitral repair and primary disease?
3: How do we assess a bad ventricle to that extent, though? I mean, that's where I struggle. Hundred percent. Right? And we and yeah. I, I didn't, you know, I don't think these guidelines really inform that anymore. But uh, I mean, I, and part of my I, just, I, I guess I don't, you know, to your point, why did they remove it? I, you know, it makes me think we're undertreating. We're having a hard time really assessing what's a bad ventricle and that we maybe we should, we should really look at this more and we need more data to really assess, you know, what LVs are recoverable.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we have some surgical retrospective data, at least for primary MR and low EF, and those patients still do well. A- again, what we're talking about is primary MR. We're not talking about um, secondary MR. And, yeah. so, and so those patients typically do recover function well. I think there are obviously limits to that when they're very dilated, but even if their ejection fraction is low, it can be acutely low and it recovers pretty well as long as we, we're not into a chronic, mm-hmm. ch- chronic state and as well as long as they're not decompensated. So I think that's a good thing. I think that opens up the, the therapy realm for people that otherwise we probably were. Not treating, um, yeah. and I think we have, you know, now even more evidence when we treat people with mitroclip who, who do really well. And I think, um, I think for both surgery and for clip, I think it's it's going to be good for patients.
1: You know, I, I um, wanted to mention also this ejection fraction. You know, what normal ejection fraction is. It's kind of the same for aortic stenosis. You know, we've got a lot of data for aortic stenosis that normal is 60%. So as you start to get below 60, uh, you start to get a little worried uh, and it didn't make it to the guidelines as far as an indication for uh, intervention. And similar with Mitral, they discuss it a lot in the text of the, of the document. But when you go to the algorithm, the algorithm still uses 60 as it's cut off or reduced. Um, right. But I do think you know it's important to mention, that the text of this guideline uh, has so much more information in it, um, which may eventually make it uh, it, it, into the guideline as as an indication.
0: There there are definitely some gaps and I agree. The 60% doesn't make entire sense to me. Um, If you have a dilated ventricle that is reading, you know, 62%, but people are, you know, barely symptomatic or minimally symptomatic, should we, should we be waiting until they get to 50% or 55%? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's what we do. It's, it's another discrepancy between what we practice and what the guidelines are saying here. Um, um, so what do you think about the, the removal of the indications for primary hypertension and atrial fibrillation for moving forward with surgery or just kind of fixing a valve in general? meme any comments,
3: anyone? I, yeah. Sir, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess it goes back to saying how you practice versus not. I mean, I, and again, the, the challenge here is all of these are taken into context uh, of the patient, right? If, if you see a 45 year old with a, a flail P2 severe MR, even if they're not asymptomatic, but you have echoes over the last two, three years and the left atrium is enlarging or the uh, you know pulmonary pressures are going up. Um, there are consequences in, in a 45 year old over the next 40 years of, of MR. And if you get to AFib or severe left atrial dilatation, AFib, that's gonna impact not only their quality of life, but a lot of other factors, whether it's TR later or other things and you know, they're not going to do well. So in that 45-year-old that has a highly repairable bowel, you, obviously the context is different than an 80-year-old with, uh, with, with the same process. And, you know, how we practice is different, right?
2: And and the guidelines do give you some wiggle room, you know, for for primary MR, for example, it says that surgery may be considered even if the LV criteria are not met, um, but that the likelihood of, of a good repair is right. more than 95% with less than 1% mortality. So there is you know, room that, that if a patient is, is reasonably low risk. And I, I think that's been our practice pattern, right? Again, one of the things in the guidelines that, um, recognizes not just the evidence, but also people's practice patterns There's clearly, I think been a move towards operating sooner in people with very severe MR, um, who are at reasonably low risk for, for, and really reasonably high probability of repair.
0: Mm-hmm. Are we placing too much emphasis on repair here? Because look at the, uh, if, if, you, if you look at the guidelines, it says a patient who has an EF greater than 60% and a LV that's small, um, if they have a good chance of repair, they should go for surgery as a 2 A indication. If they have an increase in LV size or a decrease in EF, it's only a two-B indication to move forward and part of that seems to be that if you're not a good repair candidate, then the indications to move forward are certainly much lower. Do we think that there is that much of a difference between repair and replacement?
1: In primary disease, there is. I mean, in primary disease, I, I mean, this goes back, uh, um, you know, to the trials. Grigioni is the first author. Um, you know, uh, looking at outcomes in repair versus replacement in primary disease, and uh, I think there's a difference. I, I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, I think the data is fairly strong.
0: I mean, I in
1: primary disease. I
0: think maybe for for younger people, yes. I mean, for a 75 year old, I mean, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just, I'm not I'm not sure. There's a lot of emphasis placed on uh, our repair. Um, part of it is that replacements just don't last that long. And it's kind of the the really disappointing thing about surgical valves, you know, this field for mitral has been frankly pretty poor. And I tell people that their valve will last eight to 10 years, which is pretty piss poor.
3: I um, mean, again, it, but but it goes back to the same thing, Isaac. You're taking into context the patient, their comorbidities, their their goals, their expectation, life expectancy, all those things that we talked about on the aortic side. Same here as well. And and, and you know, a not a a like not a high likelihood of repair um, versus uh, in a 45 year old is different than a 75 or 80 year old, and all those things factor in. But you know, one of the things that they keep talking about in these guidelines, which uh, I know was discussed before, is these patients should be treated at a experienced center, right? Um, and these patients should be operated on at an experienced center. Um, and you know, you, you know, the application of these guidelines are, are, are based on the surgical outcomes at those centers, right? I mean, I think those have to be factored in. If someone's be seeing the patient in a hospital where you know, they do you know, less than five mitral repairs a year, um, that that's a different conversation in that patient, and you know when should that patient be sent to a valve surgeon, right? Um, should when and when should that patient be evaluated? I mean, I think those are all important considerations as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point.
1: Um, yeah, it, it, we, we it, never. It's interesting that that you know that the algorithm for for primary MR actually refers to CVC, which is the comprehensive valve center, right? And it actually sticks it right there in the yeah, algorithm in the guideline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you can't yeah. avoid it, you know, you really should be well, furring these patients out.
3: Now, Becky, maybe I missed it, but do they say when these patients should be sent to the, like should anyone with severe, I, I might've missed this in these guidelines versus the old, is there a difference in when these patients should be referred to a experienced valve center? Um. I didn't notice that, um, but uh, yeah. I didn't look carefully at that. But I don't yeah, know if anybody they, noticed
1: they, that. They they tell you you know the differences right between uh, the structure of the two different valve centers, uh, level one and level two. Level one being comprehensive valve center versus the primary valve center. But you have to go back probably to the 2020 update of the consensus document for MR um, uh, that, that came out uh, I think in April. Uh, which which tells you when to send, um, and tells you after you've diagnosed basically severe MR by echo, you should pretty much be thinking about sending. Um, and, and so it's it's that document I think that that was a little more prescriptive about about when to send, and also um, the involvement of the heart failure expert on the multidisciplinary team, which. In prior documents had had never been emphasized. And in that document, as well as this document, is very much emphasized. Um, which I think we've also adopted, right? I mean, I love the fact that we have a heart failure meeting um, that you, you that you I set think up. I feel.
0: That was primarily for more for the FMR in terms of the text, not the primary MR, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, um, that's probably true.
0: Um, so some significant changes here, obviously, but I'm not sure any of this really changes a whole lot of what we do. I mean, maybe some of these asymptomatic patients, you know, it seems like um, there's a little bit higher bar to to say that we need to be treating them in some ways. Um, yeah. that's the only thing I would say here.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting that. In contrast to the aortic Guidelines, a little bit that we had already discussed, Isaac, the, these really remain largely surgical, you know, um, uh, guidelines. The, although, despite the, you know, significant enthusiasm after COAPT and, and so on, the indications for MitraClip are still quite limited, right? It's just higher prohibitive risk for primary MR, and there's an indication uh, class two for. For secondary MR, but it's pretty narrow, right? It really follows very closely the inclusion criteria to coap. I think reflecting some of the ongoing controversy regarding Mitra FR and otherwise. But it's 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 not sort of a, you know, have at it with with Mitraclip, and you know, it's solely based on shared decision making and patient preference. The way we're starting to see in aortic, this is this is a, a much more narrow, um, a, you know, a, a indication for transcatheter therapy than we're seeing in the aortic space.
1: I think for primary MR, it has to do with the incredibly good results from surgery um, and the durability of those good repairs, you know, um, and how well patients do. So I think that it's fair um, that we not be clipping everybody, which may actually then, uh, you know, eliminate the ability to do a good surgical repair if you've got a clip on there. Um, and make sure that we're making the right decision as far as surgery, you know, versus clip right up front. I guess, Becky,
3: the challenge with that, though, I would just uh, uh, raise is, and, I, and I, we just need more trial data, and, and the TAVR trials allowed us to get to that point and, and change how we practice, but, you know, surgical data is good, but age is, is age, now, you know, yeah. an 82-year-old with P2 prolapse yeah. is technically low risk for surgery. Um, right? They, you know, their STS is going to be around 2%, but we also know where we are now versus 10 years ago that, you know, you can get a reasonable result with, with MitraClip in those patients, actually a good result, right? And we're better at predicting. And I think that's where clinical practice has evolved. And I think, you know, an 82-year-old in, in centers that are busy that have a large valve center are getting Clip more than surgery. And, and Isaac, you know, I know we've had this discussion, and that's whether and the, but the challenge here is that's not going to be supported by any of the guidelines, uh, you know unless someone says they're high risk for whatever reason, uh, age alone being the reason, because we haven't had the chance to do those trials of high, intermediate, and low. Because we had blanket approval in TAVR, clinical practice evolved relatively quickly. Here, how the guidelines are gonna support it. We're gonna need data from trials like Repair MR and others that are looking at lower risk populations. And re- reality is Repair MR is gonna be like uh, P2. It's gonna be an elderly population, probably mid seventies, late seventies. It's not gonna be 45 because to, to your point, the surgical data and primary MR is so good. None of us, I would never put a clip on a 45 year old, you know, that, that's low risk, it doesn't make sense. But that 80 year old, I would feel very comfortable and now we're doing trials to help support that, although a lot of places, that's where clinical practice has already evolved to. Well, this,
0: this goes back to one of the points we made in the other uh, episode, is what's the point of these guidelines, right? The FDA will allow you to do certain things, right? And get paid for certain things. So there's there's no relative pushback for these guidelines saying that you should follow or adhere these to these guidelines. The FDA, um, will give you approval based on what they review a data for. And they gave blanket approval for aortic stenosis, let's say, right? They're not necessarily giving approval for uh, a condition based on the trial inclusion exclusion, right? They look at the trial data and say, this is what we're gonna give you approval for. And what's happened more recently in clinical trials is they just say, here, you're approved for treating aortic stenosis, let's say, right? There are very few, there's very few exclusions in the wording for for TAVR, right? Which has allowed us to create these situations where we're unclear of what's better for certain people because they're not pre-specified based on the trial data. We have a, a little bit of a similar situation for MitraClip. We have patients that are high risk, but it doesn't necessarily specify that the anatomy has to be amenable for uh, for MitraClip or it has to be non-commissural or Um, You know, you have to make sure that you're not going to, you know, whatever the other, you know, indications may be in terms of uh, anatomy, let's say, that were, that were used in, um, in Everest too.
1: Well, I mean, the the guidelines are probably sufficiently vague, but they do say that it has to have anatomical uh, suitability for transcatheter approach. They, it's very clear that they say that. The, the problem that I have is, as you said, that that's a moving target, right? I mean, anatomic suitability in our institution is like anything. I mean, we changed, basically our put our it on every, any possible lesion. We put, yeah, it, put on. it on the gallbladder. Except yes. maybe, <laughs> maybe a perforation down the middle of the anterior leaflet. No, But, but it, it evolves though, right? I mean, we,
3: yeah, you mentioned the Everest trial data, right?
1: The reality is at Everest, we were doing it with 2D
3: echo and the results were not good, right? And the, the clip results are not are different now with, and it's really, it's a little bit of an evolution of clip but not much, it's really an evolution of imaging. Yeah, I know Becky's going to love us saying that. It's the evolution of the imaging this and the This is recorded, this is recorded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's allowing the better results, but, but, the, but it's because of Everest data that the guidelines can't be stronger in regards to the use of microclip but the the clinical practice is different than these guidelines and I, that's the only point i'm making right that's it's not you know it's not 45 year olds but 75 year olds in many places are getting a clip if they have ideal anatomy and that's the reality
0: i mean i think there is some onus for the um, for the fda to to interact with the guideline uh, creators and make sure there's some uh, some you know similarities and some con- concordance with with that because when there's big discordance, it does create difficulties. And yeah. unfortunately, it's been the responsibility of the FDA to try to make sure that their approval has been somewhat related to what the trials have been reflecting. But, um, but we
1: we often have this whole discussion right in 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 Valva meeting, where you know the patient's a tough clip case. But there is no way you can repair it surgically. Like, it, it's not going to be a repair. It's going to re- be a replacement. And then we're going to try the clip. Because why not? Because it's not you're not going to, you know, we don't hurt your chances of doing the appropriate surgery. Um, and so those are the kind of nuances that can never be captured uh, in a sure. guideline. The, yeah. the, 'Cause the reality is the
3: ideal clip candidate is also the ideal surgical candidate, right? A
1: P2 That's prolapse true.
3: is what we all we all want, right? That's very whether true. it's for clip for surgery. Okay,
0: I think we're gonna wrap up. Um hopefully this has uh made it a little less confusing, but I would recommend looking through uh I think I'm more confused the though. guidelines. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure this helped, but you know, again, a moving target. I think we're gonna have some more data in the next three years by the time the next update comes around that will um, probably make it more confusing, but at least, you know, the trials between intermediate uh, primary patients, intermediate risk primary patients between CLIP and we'll have different kinds of CLIP and, you know, will that be different? Um, So uh, we'll we'll take a look and we'll see. All right, until then, see you soon.